Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Uh, well, later in the hour, uh, another edition of What Dennis Found in the Basement. That's our journey back in time to the early days of radio here in Iowa. And today, something very special. We'll hear excerpts from an interview with the great writer, well, great humorist, Kurt Vonnegut. Later this half hour, Brianne Fannensteel of the Des Moines Register will tell us about a new Iowa poll showing eroding support for Donald Trump among Iowa Republicans. Also, Vanessa Miller of the Gazette on this week's announcement that the University of Iowa Athletics will uh, reimburse the state of Iowa for $2 million. That's part of a, a larger football settlement. But first, let's tackle another busy week at the Iowa State House. Robin Upsall is with us. So, Robin is a reporter covering the state legislature and politics for Iowa Capital Dispatch. Uh, Robin, welcome back to our program. Wonderful. Happy to be here. Thanks. A number of items to get to, a flurry of activity at the State House. Let's start with the ban on gender-affirming care for transgender minors. It has sped through the legislature in the past couple of weeks to the governor's desk. What are the main points of this legislation? So this is mainly a ban on puberty blockers, hormone replacement therapy, and any surgeries performed on minors for gender-affirming reasons. Uh, These procedures, as well as uh, medicine that's available, so say hormones or puberty blockers, can still be prescribed to people who are not transitioning to a gender that's different from their birth, but are specifically for people uh, who are transgender or non-binary. Mm-hmm. Give us a sense of, it's a very contentious bill, give us a sense of, of what debate over this was like. Yeah, so this has been, um, as we might talk about, there's been a lot of protests for this um, with the group saying that this violates the Civil Rights Code of Iowa, which specifies that uh, you cannot discriminate against people based on gender identity and that denying people care because they are transgender, which is what Democrats are saying this will do, uh, constitutes a violation of that. But Republicans are saying that these are uh, sometimes permanent or life-altering treatments, which have, um, there are different studies based on places in uh, Sweden and abroad versus what uh, American medical associations recommend about the efficacy uh, and safety of these treatments. So what the argument from the Republican side is, is that uh, people who are transgender should at least wait until they're 18 to pursue these treatments. Fitting into this debate, Robin, also statistics on transgender youth and suicide. Yeah, I mean, LGBTQ youth who uh, have supporting people in the, their lives as well as who have access to uh these gender-affirming services and care uh, report significantly lower rates of suicide. However, uh, transgender youth are overall at a greater risk of suicide than the base population, and that uh, 
that distinction continues into adulthood. Even people who have gotten gender-affirming care continue to be uh, at risk of suicide at higher rates than cisgender, uh, a baseline population. So Republicans have used that argument to say that there might be other mental health issues going on and that people are pursuing these uh, medical treatments as a way to deal with uh, other mental health issues. But Democrats say the reason for those higher uh, depression and suicide rates are because uh, people are not welcoming and affirming of people of different gender identities. Mm-hmm. Uh, no doubt that the governor will sign this bill. Yeah, she hasn't yet, but she has talked quite a bit about uh, especially gender identity issues in school. That has been a big part of her uh, a big part of her campaign and and talk around this legislative session. So it looks likely that she will. Mm-hmm. Uh, another LGBTQ bill advancing this week, effectively banning transgender students from using the bathroom, a locker room that aligns with their gender identity. Instead, uh, these transgender youth would have to use school facilities that align with their assigned gender at birth. Tell us more about this. Yeah, so this uh, is going against what some Schools, most controversially, Linmar and other school districts allow transgender students to use the facilities that align with their um, preferred gender, uh, and this would ban those practices. Uh, there are some stipulations that if a family um, that knows their child is transgender and approves of them socially transitioning, those families can formally request alternative uh, accommodations, so say single-use restrooms. Uh, But LGBT activists have pointed out that this may further isolate having a kid um, who is transgender who is at higher rates of bullying, uh, more statistically, having them go to the bathroom in like a... uh, you know, in the teacher's lounge might further isolate them. But both of those, yeah, the the measure passed the Senate, but has not yet been heard by the House. I think there's a question of whether this is legal as well, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, So there have been some federal federal court cases on this in multiple uh, courts of appeals, uh, I believe. And One of the cases that Democrats have brought up is where a transgender man who was prohibited by his local school district from using uh, the male bathroom uh, won his case. Uh, And it was ruled that these bathroom bills are a violation of Title IX protections. However, uh, Republicans said during the debate other other courts have ruled that these bills do not violate any rights, uh, and the the district Iowa sits in has not ruled on these issues yet. Which, uh, to them, say this is enforceable for now, if if signed, of course. 
Away from uh, transgender-related uh, legislation, let's go to uh, teaching licensure. Um, legislation advancing that would create alternative licenses for K-12 through teachers who do not have education degrees. Um, I guess this is an answer uh, to um, addressing teaching shortages, teacher shortages here in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is something that obviously people have been talking about a lot Um these alternative pathways are uh, the legislature also the House also passed um, measures giving out-of-state teachers an easier path towards towards Iowa licensure um, is pretty much to address the teacher shortage, right? Uh, however, uh, education uh, field professionals and Democrats advocating for them, some of them teachers themselves, uh, said that these could lower standards or um, put people who aren't necessarily taught in how to teach despite being uh, professionals in their field uh, through these loosening of requirements. Mm-hmm. And let's finish up, Robin, with your comments on this huge uh, bit of legislation, I think 15, 1,600 pages yeah. advancing. Um, this is the governor, uh, one of the governor's many priorities, consolidating uh, state executive agencies. Um, it's it's very large. We're going to tackle this next week on River to River uh, in some more detail. But uh, what can you tell us now about some key specifics of this expansive bill and and what the governor's reasons for pursuing it are. Yeah, so the governor laid this out as one of her top priorities uh, because she says that this will save the state over uh, $215 million and that in comparing to other states, I was current uh, 37 level, 37 cabinets in our system of state government is overburdensome and can be reduced. Um, It it passed the Senate uh, and kind of in those debates, uh, Democrats brought up a number of uh, amendments addressing specific issues where uh, while, while the goal of the consolidation is to align different organizations within wherever they best fit is sort of the the overall way to say it, but that uh, sometimes people uh, who work in those agencies say that could remove their independence and their ability to criticize and kind of offer a offer counter arguments or a watchdog role to the agencies they will now be under. So some of those include the Child Advocacy Board, uh, which is currently under the Department of Inspections, would go under the Health and Human Services. Uh, that could be an issue if uh, child advocates disagree with the official caseworkers. Uh, the the uh, Iowa Consumer Advocate would also go under the Attorney General, uh, which would have more power in deciding staffing, which they say if they uh, criticize utilities, uh, people with those utilities may be able to go to uh, go to the AG and ask them for, you know, retaliation. And these are just issues that people have brought up, not that there is, you know, there is uh, corruption that we know that this would happen, but it would open up those possibilities is what Democrats argued 
uh, we should be concerned about. Okay, Robin, uh, thanks for the look back at this week. Um, in a few words, what will you be watching in the coming week? Yep, so we still have the uh, bathroom bathroom bill to go through the House, um, several of the education bills in terms of the governor's proposals still have to go through as well. Um, one of the uh, Republican leadership goals for this year was property tax reform. Uh, mm-hmm. Both chambers have their own proposals on that, and those haven't yet advanced, so I'm keeping an eye on that as well. Oh, and carbon pipelines. <laughs> And carbon pipelines. So much yeah. going on at the Iowa legislature. Robin, we're glad you're, you're keeping track of it uh, for us. Robin Upsall, Iowa Capital Dispatch reporter. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz. I'm Ben Kiefer. Back in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about the Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Maybe you saw it just out today, a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll. It shows eroding support for Donald Trump among Iowa Republicans, and uh, this is significant. Remember, in the GOP column, Iowa remains the first-in-the-nation test for White House hopefuls. Brianne Fannin-Steele is with us, a chief politics reporter at the Des Moines Register. Hi, Brianne. Hi, how are you, Ben? I'm doing fine. This is a poll of just over 800 Iowans, including 257 self-identified Republicans, conducted earlier this week, March 5th through the 8th, by Selzer and Company of Des Moines. Tell us more about this erosion of support for the former president and declared candidate for 2024. Yeah, well, we really wanted to get a sense of how Iowa Republicans are viewing this field of candidates, kind of to get a baseline as we're really starting to see campaigning start to start to gear up. And so, of course, everyone's really interested to see how former President Donald Trump is doing. He, um, you know, obviously carried the state twice in two general elections. He's held the office. And so there's there are some high expectations for how he might perform. But we've seen his support, as you say, kind of erode a little bit from a high point in, in September of 2021, he was doing quite well, but his favorability ratings have fallen off. In that that last poll in September 2021, he was viewed favorably by 91% of Iowa Republicans. That's down to 80% now, which is still quite high, but it's it's a notice, noticeable and notable shift downward. Um, his unfavorable numbers are climbing up from 7% in 2021 to 18% now. Again, a, a marked uh, move upward. And then we also asked Iowa Republicans, if the general election were today and Donald Trump were the president, how likely would you be to vote for him? 74% of Iowa Republicans told us they would that they would likely vote for him in the 2024 general election. Again, that's a big percentage, but that is 47% who say they would definitely vote for him. And that's down quite a bit. 69% told us 
uh, previously that they would definitely vote for him. So we're really kind of seeing some some warning signals that, as our pollster J.N. Seltzer says, Iowa is is not locked in for Donald Trump at this point. Mm-hmm. How do you interpret this slide in support in the two questions you just uh, outlined in this survey? What um, What is believed to be behind it? Yeah, well, you know, I think from our reporting and from talking to um, Republicans who, who are going to a lot of these early caucus events, they're interested in other candidates. You know, these, these numbers come after uh, the January 6th Capitol riots at the U.S. Capitol. We've seen a number of investigations into into Donald Trump, including, you know, efforts to subvert the 2020 election, some of his business dealings and things like that. So as we're talking to people at these events, we're hearing quite a bit that, you know, some Republicans are kind of just tired of that drama. They want those policies, but they want it from a different messenger. And so, you know, I, I don't want to undersell Donald Trump's support here in the state. He, he clearly has a hold on a lot of Republicans, and we'll get to see that uh, in full force on Monday. He's going to be in this state in Davenport campaigning for the first time since he announced he's running again. But we're certainly seeing some interest and, and some openness from, from a lot of Republicans who want to see somebody else. Right. And, and we're speaking on a day uh, when we're, we've just heard the news that uh, Donald Trump was invited to testify before a grand jury in New York. Um, this is the, the, one of the multiple investigations uh, into the, the president's activities. This one, the role in hush money payments to an adult film star during his 2016 campaign, uh, suggesting here that uh, uh, a former president may be uh, indicted. So undoubtedly uh, weighing on the minds of uh, Iowa Republicans there as as, as you just uh, mentioned there. I was interested, uh, before, before I know uh, you're covering Ron DeSantis today. He's in Iowa, uh, in the Quad Cities. Uh, but before we move on to that, um, some of the individual responses that were featured in your article written with your colleague Francesca Block are um, illuminating. Um, sh- share one or two of the quotes there, if you could. Sure. So, you know, we, we called several people um, who, who responded to the poll and kind of interviewed them about why they answered the questions the way that they did. And so, you know, we got a, a big range of responses from people um, who um, had various views of the president. And so, um, you know, somebody who we talked to, his name is Stephen Goodenough. He's um, from Guthrie Center. He's a 72-year-old Republican, and he said that Trump is is kind of his current top choice by default. Uh, but he wants to see who else is is in the field. He says, "quote I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool Trump fan. I'm probably more middle of the road with him, so I'm looking for other options. But you know, I would probably vote for him again if he's the candidate." So he's someone who you know is is generally a Trump supporter, doesn't mind voting for him again in the general election. But since this is a primary since Iowa Republicans get the very first say in who the nominee is going to be. He's interested in, in seeing some of these other folks who are out and about. So he's, he's kind of put yeah. off by the attacks that Donald Trump has already put out against candidates like Nikki Haley, like Ron DeSantis, both of whom are, are campaigning in the state today. Right. And also part of this poll, uh, surprisingly few, I guess, uh, uh, 
very few are unlikely to vote for Donald Trump or definitely would not. Nine percent when those two are put together. One quote from in your article from a, a man, Dan Linen, 64 years old uh, from Woodburn, a Republican, uh, says his views on Trump have changed drastically following the January 6th uh, U.S. Uh, Capitol riot. Um, he he didn't uh, like uh, this uh, Republican Iowan, uh, didn't like the way Trump uh, dealt with his election defeat, wouldn't consider voting for him again. In the last few minutes we have here, let's focus on Ron DeSantis here. Favorability ratings uh, right up there when you include the margin of error, certainly with the former president. Tell us about uh, his polling. Right. So, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis, again, he's not a declared candidate, but he is in the state for the first time today. He is expected to run, probably announcing later this spring. Um, But he's viewed favorably right now by 74 percent of Iowa Republicans. And that's pretty close to where Donald Trump is at. Donald Trump is at about 80 percent favorability with Iowa Republicans. So that's that's a really good name ID for someone who, you know, is not actually launched a national campaign yet. This is someone who's been on TV quite a bit, particularly through the pandemic, talking about what he's done as the governor of Florida. So he's viewed unfavorably by just 6% of Iowa Republicans, 20% say they're not sure. So he's not quite as well known as Donald Trump, but he's he's viewed um, quite favorably. And among independents, they're pretty pretty evenly split. About 35% view him favorably, 33% unfavorably, and another third not sure. Yeah. And in the final minute, uh, Brianne, it's interesting in my political conversations on this program over the past few weeks, I often find myself mentioning DeSantis uh, together in some form with Governor Kim Reynolds. So their policy agendas in Florida and Iowa uh, comparable, do you think? That's exactly right. And and Governor Kim Reynolds is appearing with Governor DeSantis today. They're going to do kind of a a conversation-style interview at, at both of um, DeSantis' stops. He's doing one in Davenport and one in Des Moines. And it's really, um, you know, a, a good pairing because they are so similar in kind of just their their rise to prominence. You know, both, both really leaned into kind of pushing back against COVID restrictions and and making a name for themselves that way in, in the national conversation. And then both both states are pursuing kind of, you know, this very culture war agenda on top of, you know, kind of some more traditional conservative policies. So it'll be interesting to see how they kind of um, interact with each other at both of these events today. Okay, Brian Fannensteel, chief politics reporter at the Des Moines Register, looking at the new uh, Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll showing some eroding support for Donald Trump. Brianne, thank you so much. Thank you. It's your Friday News Buzz edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. University of Iowa Athletics will reimburse the state of Iowa for $2 million. That's part of a $4.2 million deal to settle a discrimination lawsuit um, brought by 12 former football players uh, against the UI Athletics and its coaches. Now, that announcement was made by the UI President Barbara Wilson yesterday morning. Earlier this week, the State Appeal Board agreed to settle the lawsuit and fund nearly half of the payout with taxpayer dollars from the state's general fund. Joining us, uh, an Iowa journalist who has been covering this, have to say, rather complex saga for years, Vanessa Miller covers higher ed for the Gazette. So glad to have you to explain this to us, Vanessa. Welcome again. 
Thanks. Thanks, Ben. Before we get to the latest news, I'd like to have you rewind, uh, wind it back to the beginning and and tell us how this lawsuit all started and when. Yeah, it was back in 2020. Um, I think uh, sort of the George Floyd um, events prompted some of the discussion on social media. A lot of former football players and athletes came out around that time sharing, um, you know, incidents and experiences that they had while they were at the University of Iowa. Um, So from that, the university responded. They uh, let go of their strength and conditioning coach, Chris Doyle. They formed a diversity committee. They did um, several things, but the lawsuit was filed in November of 2020. Um, And so many of the players that had spoken out on social media were among those named in this lawsuit. And so they were accusing the football program and several named coaches, along with the athletic director, Gary Barta, of fostering a culture of racism and discrimination, harassment. They went into great lengths to detail very specific experiences that they had, um, talked about, you know, comments they made around their hair, their clothing, also just like way that, that they were treated during practices, for example, but like it was more harsh discussion around nutrition and, um, yeah, their their bodies and how are they treated around that. So there was a lot there was a lot in the lawsuits. And um, like you said, it went on for years. There were times where the football program said, you know, we're in the middle of the season. This isn't a good time um, for us to focus on this. And so the judge agreed and would postpone it. Um, and then, you know, went through a whole summer and came to another football season where they again were like, not a good time. Can you postpone some of these hearings? And so, again, it went back and forth. Um, I do think there were finally depositions taken of some coaches and players, but not all. And then, yeah, and then, um, you know, earlier this year, they uh, came to an agreement, a settlement that was made public earlier this week. The State Appeal or the State Appeal Board voted on it, agreed. The auditor didn't. and and then there's been pushback around the $2 million portion that came from taxpayer dollars. So, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let, let's focus in on, on what the uh, Iowa uh, State Auditor said, Rob Sand, uh, this week, uh, to quote a couple of his, you know, he had a news conference. Um, uh, he he uh, the, the disagreement here is, is what, before I read a couple of the quotes, what, what did Rob Sand uh, um, disagree with here? Well, he didn't want the $2 million portion to come from the state general fund. He said that there have been lots of, not lots, but numerous discrimination uh, settlements that have come out of the athletic department. And he's saying, I'm not going to support continuing to pay for these if the if the same leadership is at the helm. And so he's saying that the attorney general determined that paying this $4.2 million is in the taxpayer's best interest, that going forward with the lawsuit could rack up more attorney fees and potentially result in a loss in court and a higher jury demand. So he's like, okay, if $4.2 million is in the taxpayer's best interest, I want a clause within this settlement that says that there has to be a leadership change. Um, the other two members of the state appeal board did not vote uh, like him, although the treasurer, Roby Smith, did say he also would like, would encourage the university to make a change uh, within the athletic department leadership. So that was kind of the contention is he wanted something to change before he supported continuing to pay for things like this. 
so so w- with that quote from Rob Sand putting a finer point on it and pointing directly at uh, Gary Barda, the UI Athletic Department, the head of that, um, uh, what has the Athletic Department at the UI said? What has the uh, UI president said? Right. Well, President Barbara Wilson hasn't responded specifically to questions around the leadership in the athletic department. She did make a statement yesterday morning um, saying that she appreciated the AG's work and the state appeal board's work and that the athletics department will reimburse the state for the $2 million portion that the taxpayers were on the hook for previously. Um, But again, didn't comment on the leadership portion. Uh, Head coach Kirk Ferentz did release a comment. Um, or a statement right earlier in the week, right after the settlement was announced, saying he was greatly disappointed in how this legal matter, matter was resolved. Um, he said that the negotiations took place without um, the named defendants being involved. Um, and says, in fact, the parties originally named disagree with the decision to settle, fully believing that the case would have been dismissed with prejudice before trial. Um, also really saying that his uh, his character and those on his staff had been unfairly and negatively impacted by the allegations. Mm-hmm. That's the okay, only comment so, that's come out of the athletics department. Mm-hmm. Let's pivot over to the state capitol, because I understand from your reporting, lawmakers have introduced a bill that would mandate Iowa's public universities reimburse it for costs associated with settlements tied to athletics. Uh, how does that figure into this picture? Right. Well, they uh, proposed that bill Wednesday evening um, and made it retroactive, which would have compelled the university to take the action that it did by announcing that it would be reimbursed the state for $2 million. But when asked whether after President Wilson came out with that commitment that they wanted to continue with the bill, lawmakers did say they wanted to pursue it for any for any future settlements that come about. So that's uh, still in motion and moving forward. And again, it would just require, um, it would say, fine, we can pay out these settlements immediately and promptly out of the treasury, but anything that's related to athletics would have to be reimbursed from the universities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is this saga at an end, Uh, Vanessa, or what will you be watching if it's not? I'm going to be watching whether there is any change um, within the athletic department leadership. So um, Gary Barter's contract actually ends in June 2024. Um, A clause says that if he is let go without cause, he would have to be paid for 24 months of his base salary, which is equal to $1.3 million. And there's less than 24 months left in his contract. (laughs) So it would... Financially, unless they release him with cause, I'm not sure, you know, they're probably, I don't know if they're discussing that or not, but that's just something that's been put out there from the auditor, and so it's worth thinking about. So I'll be watching that, definitely, and also where this bill goes that the legislature has proposed. Right. Vanessa Miller, thank you for sorting it, um, complex, the complexities of this out for us. (laughs) Vanessa Miller covers higher ed for the Gazette. Take care, Vanessa. Thanks. You too. Coming up after a short break, we'll hear excerpts from an interview with Kurt Vonnegut, recorded in 1966 when he was teaching at the Iowa Writers Workshop. When your Friday News Buzz continues... Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. 
Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, it's time for another in our series of occasional conversations here on River to River that explores radio the way it used to be in the early days. It's time for What Dennis Found in the Basement. The stars of this occasional series we love to have here on River to River, looking back to radio of yesteryear. Dennis Reese, a retired IPR midday host and uh, uh, a guru of all things uh, in the past having to do with radio. Dennis, welcome to you. Nice to be back. Tim Walsh is with us as well, historian, director emeritus of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. The idea, if you haven't heard any of this series before, Dennis has been going through uh, archival material stored in the basement of IPR's facility in Iowa City. So much there, documents, recordings, all kinds of, of items. And Dennis brings up something or some things from the basement each time we do one of these segments. And Tim helps us out with uh, placing that in sort of historical context. Dennis, what do you have for us this time? Well, we have a large tape, a dusty tape, but the quality is still pretty good, actually, after all these years. Recorded uh, in 1966, a WSUI interview with the great author Kurt Vonnegut, conducted not by a staffer, but by University of Iowa English professor Robert Scholes, who quite renowned himself. He went on to teach for years at Brown. But Kurt Vonnegut loved it in Iowa City. He arrived in Iowa City to teach in the Writers' Workshop November 17, 1965. He would have been 43 years old. He had little kids uh, he was raising that were along with him and his wife. He, actually, he was an 11th-hour replacement for Robert Lowell. The great Robert Lowell was supposed to teach. He canceled, and the Writers' Workshop uh, Found Vonnegut, he was not famous really at the time. He became, of course, very famous uh, due to Slaughterhouse-Five, which he wrote here in Iowa City, believe it or not. Okay, so give us some historical background on on what uh, Kurt Vonnegut had experienced up to this point that led him to some of these great novels. Exactly. Vonnegut uh, is is kind of typical of the kind of post-World War II GI who decides to take his experience. Uh, and, and Vonnegut had started a college at Cornell and dropped out in 1943, joined the Army, and happened to be at the Battle of the Bulge, which, uh, of course, a lot of people will remember in 1944, uh, and, and was captured prisoner of war. He was taken to Dresden and actually was uh, uh, with other prisoners in a, in a meat locker in, the, in a deep basement in Dresden when the firebombs came and dis- virtually destroyed the entire city. And that left a mark on him. And we're going to hear later, we're going to hear a segment about writing about war because a lot of writers of that era, Norman Mailer and others, Joseph Heller, all of whom were uh, uh, colleagues of, of Vonnegut's, also wrote about war. So Vonnegut came from a family of architects. His brother uh, had worked for, for General Electric, I think it was. He worked for General Electric. He decided he wanted to write. Uh, and so he, he literally set out to write, wrote a, a, a book called, uh, I think it was Player Piano in 1952. I'm, I think it was a paperback, in fact, and wrote another novel called Mother Night, also a paperback, a couple of science fiction books. And we're going to hear a segment on science fiction, Sirens of Titan and Cat's Cradle. But then, as Dennis, as Dennis referred to, it was, it was Slaughterhouse-Five that really made the difference in his career. But we're hearing an interview with Vonnegut here before. Before, all this before, before, before. Okay. He, he was have He was a, 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 a kind of a moderate 
regional writer at the time. Not nearly the fame uh, that that name enjoys today. Iowa gave him the opportunity to shine through Slaughterhouse-Five and and Skulls, and he referred to it at that point. We're going to hear three excerpts from this interview you mentioned, Dennis. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut being interviewed by Iowa English professor, then uh, Robert Skulls in 1966 set up this first uh, excerpt. Well, the first cut is Vonnegut and Skulls. Talk about the role of science. And, of course, uh, Vonnegut, as as Tim said, was a you know majored in science and also about science fiction and literature. Uh, most people regard science fiction writers as interchangeable with comic book writers, as they frequently are. They frequently are, but there have uh, been some pretty uh, oh, astonishing uh, Extraordinary work, yes. And uh, uh, all writers is, uh, are going to have to learn more about science simply because it's such an important part of their environment. It's something that worries me about some of our students in the workshop, is they know nothing about machinery, uh, about scientific, the scientific method and so forth. And to reflect their times accurately, to respond to them, to their times reasonably, they have to understand that part of their re- environment. Archive audio from 1966, uh, Kurt Vonnegut being interviewed by then-Iowa English professor Robert Scholes. Um, Vonnegut teaching at that time at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, uh, but before a lot of his fame uh, arrived. Dennis, we, we have a- another excerpt from that same interview. Well, yeah, you know, it turns out that Kurt Vonnegut loved radio. He loved, he listened to radio all the time when he was growing up, and he was interviewed by the Cedar Rapids Gazette, uh, I think it was in 2001 when he came back to Iowa City to visit, and he said he loved listening to WSUI back when he was living here. He loved jazz on WSUI, which we had a lot of jazz back then. But here he's talking about the importance of radio humor back in the 1930s. I I was thinking about the Depression. Uh, This was a great time for comedians, the radio Mm -hmm. comedian, and... uh, a very bad time in the history of the country, far more unbearable in the First or Second World Wars, I think, is it ground Back people. on the home front, I should imagine. Yes, the Depression was uh, did break people's spirits. Uh, and the comedians, who uh, there was one each day at least, is Fred Allen, Joe Penner, Jack Benny, and so forth. You got your little dose of humor every day, and people did cluster around radios to... Uh, pick up right. that amount of encouragement, that amount of relief. And then finally, Henry Morgan. Uh, right. It was Benny Allen and then Henry Morgan. It was quite an uh, evening. It, it made you get through uh, the week, all right. Well, I, I got a letter from Morgan. I don't know him, but I, uh, we did have a brief interchange of letters. And I told him I remembered a joke of his from must have been about 1936, which was that Morgan says, well, you know that cat that inherited $5 million last year? Well, he died. Left his money to another cat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that helped, yeah. you know. They got everybody yeah. through three more days of depression. And uh, Yeah, it's so wonderful. It's so yeah. wonderful. Uh, <laughs> 1966, Kurt Vonnegut in conversation with uh, then-Iowa uh, English professor Robert Scholes. Uh, Vonnegut at the Iowa Writers' Workshop at the time. Uh, very interesting archival uh, sounds here. Dennis, we have one more excerpt from that interview that you've selected. I think I'll have Tim introduce the next cut. Well, the next cut, of course, is is this uh, reference to the whole importance of writing about war and the challenge that 
that uh, every writer faces in incorporating their own personal experiences. And Scholes asks, I think, did you do any uh, research? And he said, no, I I just kind of sat down and kind of wrote from memory. And so in many ways, uh, uh, the the, uh, the Slaughterhouse-Five is a... a, uh, not just a capstone or, or the greatest book of his, his career, but he wrote it from the heart. Do you mean to do more with your, your own experiences in a literary way? Or are you yes, I'm, I'm working on it now. It's what I've been working on for a long time, and uh, it's, it's extremely hard to think about. Uh, uh, you have, you know, you have these enormous concentration camps mm-hmm. uh, full of corpses, uh, and then you have a city full of corpses, and um, you know, is the city full of corpses right or wrong? Yeah. Uh, How, did you get into the mathematics of? Uh, yes, I suppose that's what you have. People, to, what uh, you have to do. Uh, yeah. Finally, uh, there's so many different ways to do it. Napalm, uh, incendiary bombing, gas chambers. Uh, oh. How do you tell the good guys from the bad guys in a situation like this? Well, I think the. Uh, the only thing I, I have been able to think of doing as a result of seeing the destruction of that city there and knowing at the same time about the great crimes of Germany mm-hmm. is to become the impossible thing, which is a pacifist. As uh, I, I figure I'm under an obligation having seen all this, you know, that that's the only possible conclusion I can come to is that we must not fight under any conditions. Well, it's and let someone else hit the happy middle ground, you know. Is, uh, it seems to me the more one looks into these wars, the less they ever seem to prove or Oh, that World War II was a good one, though. That was... Uh, well, that's the worst thing Hitler did, you know, was to make war uh, creditable uh, again. Yes. To be a real bad guy. Yes, and, it, I, it's, uh, and we came out as the authentic good guys and then mm-hmm. on into the reconstruction of Europe, too. And it's made us very smug and uh, prone to make ghastly mistakes because we have been virtuous. Fascinating to, to hear that, that 20 years after, the, approximately 20 years after the end of World War II, great author Kurt Vonnegut, before coming out with Slaughterhouse-Five, but obviously uh, ruminating about it, thinking about it, this former, this World War II veteran, former POW of World War II, fascinating to hear him think about it. Absolutely, and it, as I said, it, it, it dominated literature in the 1950s and 1960s, and in some ways, you, you know, when you think of From Here to Eternity to Slaughterhouse-Five, the, 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 the war novel was, was something of a preoccupation. But what's interesting, too, as Vonnegut and Scholes are, are talking, you realize there's no reference to Vietnam or to protesting, which, of course, would come just about another year later. Mm-hmm. So you, you're, you're here on the cusp of what is going to be one of the eras of great war protest. And then by that time, of course, Slaughterhouse-Five, which comes out in 1969, kind of rides that wave of of 
of anti-war protest. And but it, notice he doesn't mention Slaughterhouse-Five in that cut, but he was working on the book at the time, living in that Victorian mansion, the Brown Street Historic District. I would mention, he told the Cedar Rapids Gazette, when he was in Iowa City, he had, quoting now, he said, I had a hell of a good time in Iowa City. Well, they used to say the Van Buren House was like a like Party Central. It, it was, was that in the yeah. mill. And they held receptions for, you know, all these great writers, people like Saul Bellow came and others, you know. Right. Well, wasn't it, and, and I like to quote Kurt Vonnegut, I hope I'm quoting him correctly, when you are, find yourself in life in a certain circumstance that is very pleasing, very nice, wasn't Kurt Vonnegut always one to say, uh, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. <laughs> Let me say that about the meeting you two in the studio. If this isn't nice, I don't know what is. <laughs> well, that's I hope I'm quoting said. Vonnegut correctly. <laughs> I think I am. But uh, thank you for this uh, latest in our series, uh, What Dennis Found in the Basement. Uh, Dennis Reese and Tim Walsh teaming up to bring us Radio of Yesteryear, um, archival material found in the basement of IPR Studio in Iowa City. Looking forward, Tim and Dennis, to what you find in the basement next time. And we've come to the end of this News Buzz edition of River to River from IPR News on this March 10th. Hey, did you know on March 10th in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell conducted a successful experiment with the telephone. Now, during the breakthrough, he uttered his famous directive to his assistant, Thomas Watson. Um, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. It's time to groove into the weekend. So I will usher Mark Simmet here. We'll see if he responds. Mark Simmet, come here. I want to see you. We need to groove into the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) You mean uh, Bell didn't say elementary, my dear Watson? (laughs) What do you have for us uh, to groove us into the weekend? Well, we've got a couple of brand new songs from albums that are coming out in late April. And the first one is from Ricky Lee Jones, uh, definitely the most familiar name of the two artists I have for you today. Uh, Ricky Lee Jones uh, released her first album in 1979, and she's been pretty consistently releasing a new record every few years or so, although you don't hear as much about her these days. But she's got a brand new one coming out in April. It's called Pieces of Treasure. And it is her stab at the Standards album. You may recall people like Rod Stewart, Linda Ronstadt, even Bob Dylan have done uh, an album's worth or more of uh, what they call the Great American Songbook, those early 20th century jazz standards, popular songs, and show tunes uh, going to that well for songs. And that's what Ricky Lee Jones is doing on this new album. And this first single is Just in Time. Just in time You found me just in time Before you came Things were running 